Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption by his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. This, beloved, is an amazing text of Scripture. I keep trying to get started in it in the preaching. And every time I think I know where it's going, the Lord reveals something else to me that's right here. And I had planned on finishing up last week's message, and I realize I have to go back and revisit point one because we dare not miss something. Somebody once said, I've been poor and I've been rich. Rich is better. Unfortunately, most people in the world have hopes of becoming rich someday, but their, their dream has never come true. In fact, it's stunning to see how many people in America hope to hit the jackpot, either through playing the lottery or through some other form of gambling. Dr. Al Mohler of Southern Seminary reports that, according to some estimates, as much as one-third of the nation's money supply now moves through the gambling industry every year. In recent years, Americans spent more on gambling than they did on health insurance, dentists, shoes, foreign travel, or household appliances. Sadly, the vast majority, by far, of those who gamble acquire a net income of zero on their investment, and many lose everything they have. And even the people who win the big lotteries often discover that money can't buy what their soul truly longs for. We've all heard of stories of the many who have won multi-million dollar payouts who later confess that they were better off before they won now they're deeper in debt with fewer relationships or rockier marriage than they ever had before. Money can't buy you love. Money can't buy you what really matters. The same is often true of those who get rich through legitimate means. They spend years climbing the ladder of success only to get to the top at the end and discover that there's nothing there. Nothing of any real value, anyway. 
Because you see, money can't fix a broken marriage or mend a damaged relationship. Money can't turn the heart of a rebellious son back to his father or empower a man to resist the temptations of lust or greed or revenge. The only thing that the love of money promises, said Peter, is all sorts of evil, and by longing for it, many have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's the promise of wealth. Acquiring wealth is a dangerous thing. And that's especially true for the people of God, because Jesus said you cannot serve God and wealth. Matthew 6.24. And notice, he didn't say you should not serve God in wealth. He said you cannot serve God in wealth. In fact, Jesus went on to say that it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Why? Because the promise of wealth is that it will meet all of your needs. It'll make you happy. It'll make you healthy. It'll make you comfortable. It claims to have the power to win you love and security, and significance. In short, money promises to be your all-sufficient, all-satisfying God. You cannot serve that God and God. So acquiring wealth is a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing to have money. And you know what? Everyone in this room has got it. And all you need to feel the significance of that is take one footstep, one footstep across the border south of here into Mexico, and you'll see how rich you are. The poorest of us is rich in this world. But you're in a dangerous spot. You see, the reason you cannot serve God in money is that God will allow no rivals in the lives of his people. He alone must be our all-sufficient, all-satisfying Savior. And the wealth he gives truly does provide everything we need in this life for lasting love and joy and significance and meaning. And after all of that, eternal life. It's not that God is calling people to be poor, necessarily. To the contrary, he invites all of us to become unspeakably rich in him. You may not realize it, but God has made you rich beyond your wildest dreams. If you will but have eyes to see and a heart to enjoy it. But the wealth that he gives is not the kind made of silver and gold. It's not that kind of wealth. That's perishable. The wealth that he gives you is imperishable because it's eternal. The Apostle Peter spoke of these riches when he wrote 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Blessed, listen to how closely this is to Ephesians chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And understand, Peter was writing to a persecuted church. You're rich because you have Jesus. You are unspeakably rich. 
The Apostle Paul also referred to our eternal wealth when he wrote 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He became poor so that you could be rich. It's amazing how much spiritual poverty there is in the church. It's like millions of millionaires who can't figure out how to spend a dollar of eternal treasure. They can't figure out how to pray. They can't figure out how to read the Bible. They can't figure out the riches that are theirs and how to employ them in worship and in in secret prayer and memorizing the Word of God and living a holy, obedient life. Always having ears, always hearing, but never able to understand. And it's not that they can't understand, it's that they will not because of the changes that it will require in their lifestyles. If you're a child of God, you are unspeakably rich. You have all the things that the world longs for but cannot have and cannot acquire by gathering to themselves money and wealth. And the reason the Apostle Paul wrote the first half of the book of Ephesians was to unveil the infinite and eternal wealth that is ours if we belong to Christ. You say, where do you pick up that analogy? Out of Ephesians? Chapter 1, verse 7, we have redemption according to the riches of His grace. Chapter 1, verse 18, Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we will know what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. He's saying, open your eyes. I pray for you every day that you would just open your eyes to how rich you are. The reason that you struggle so much in your marriage and with your kids and with your immoral thoughts and and all the stuff that I'm going to deal with in chapter 4, 5, and 6 is because you're blowing it in this area. You don't have eyes that can see. You're unwilling to see your riches in Christ. I pray that you will open your eyes. Chapter 2, verse 17, God raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly places so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us. Chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says that he was sent by God to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 16, Paul prays that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. You are rich. You dare not live like you are spiritually poor. In fact, God calls us not only to enjoy the wealth, but to boast in our riches in Christ. That's called worship, and that's called evangelism. And so we read the first 14 verses of chapter 1. We need to see that Paul is revealing to us just how rich we are in Christ. In fact, he's boasting in our mutual riches in Christ. 
And, and in a sense, that's what worship is all about. It's all about boasting in the Lord our God. It's about proclaiming with unfettered exuberance the glory of God and how blessed we are to belong to Him. And that's what Paul is doing when he proclaims, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's boasting in God. He's boasting in his riches in Christ. He's proclaiming how wonderful it is to be so rich in who God is for us, rich in what he has done for us, and rich in what he has promised to do for us. Three points. You'd think it'd be a simple sermon. It's going to take me at least three weeks. And this is week two. All of this is why many people have been known to call the letter to the Ephesians the Christian's checkbook, the believer's bank account, or the treasure house of the Bible. There are many places in the Bible where we're commanded not to boast in our riches. And by that, he's meaning, that is God, don't boast in your money. It's not real. It can't buy you anything real. It can only buy you superficial things because it cannot buy you more of God. Don't boast in your riches, but there is one exception to that command. God wants us to absolutely give ourselves over to boasting in our riches in Christ. And that's what Paul is doing before us in this text this morning. As we read along, we find him boasting in three things. He's boasting in the riches of who God is. The boast, he's boasting in the riches of what God has done. And he's boasting in the riches of what he has promised to do for us. Last week, we looked at the first one of those. Paul invites us to boast in the riches of all that God is for us in Jesus. But let's go back and make a couple of more observations. And that's all I want to do this morning. And in these observations, I have one goal. I want your soul to be encouraged. I was working on memorizing with you this week, driving down the road, got my little cards out, which I don't think I have in my pocket here, just working on 1 through 10. You know, you ride down the road, you turn off the radio, you just start quoting, start quoting, start looking at your card, trying not to run through a red light or have an accident. And there, words started jumping out at me. And this is what happens when you read the Word of God repetitively and when you, mem- when you memorize it for the purpose of meditation. Things begin to come off the page at you. And I had this sermon well on its way when I was in the midst of of meditating and memorizing on this text. And these things started to come off the page almost to me. And I thought, I've got to stop everything. I've got to talk about this. I've got to boast about these things this Sunday. We'll get to the rest of it next week. And so I want to go back. To say it differently than we did last week, point number one is boasting in the riches of who God is for us. Now, if you're taking notes, forget the other two points. You're going to have to squeeze this one in. Why does Paul bless God? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw last week, eulageo is the Greek word, eulogy, to speak well of, to praise, to say something good about. Why is he blessing God in that way? Well, first of all, because of who God is. 
He's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the father of the one who gave his life to save us. We are unspeakably rich because our Heavenly Father is also the Father of Jesus Christ who died to save us from the wrath that was due us because of our sin. That's why we're rich. And this reveals something to us about God. In fact, I'd like to take just a few minutes, actually probably the rest of our time together, to look at this text and see just what kind of God Paul is praising. Because he tells us what kind of God he is. Right here. First of all, number one, he is a God who blesses. He's a God who blesses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, folks, he's not an angry God. Not toward his people. And that's what this whole letter is to, right? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. He's speaking to believers here. And Paul is saying to us, in this statement of worship, in this doxology, in this prayer of worship and doxology to the Lord, He's revealing something that he knows. God is not angry with us. He's not an angry tyrant who's always demanding and never satisfied with what we have to offer. In fact, to the contrary, he is a God who is easy to please. And he never demands that we serve him in order to meet his needs. Do you understand that? God never demands that we serve him in order to meet his needs. And here's why. He doesn't have any. He doesn't have any needs. Everything comes from him. Everything that there is comes from him. There is nothing that we could add back to him that he didn't already have. Because it all came from him. Acts 17, 24, he said, this is Paul speaking to the philosophers in Greece. He says, the God who made the world and all things in it, let me tell you about him. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. God calls us to serve a God who cannot be served because he needs nothing. We serve him always, 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 not as the benefactor, saying, God, we just want to bless you. We just want to give to you something. We want to tip your hand. You've served us so well. We just want to do something to make your life a little better. No, 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 no. Whenever we yield our service unto God, even unto death, we say, God, thank you. Thank you. I am the beneficiary of this service. You have given to me life and breath and all things. And I give you my life back because I want more of what you have to give. He is the God who blesses. Matthew 5, 44 and 45, Jesus said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so, so that you may be sons of your Father. That is, so that you may be just like your dad. 
who is in heaven. Well, how is that? How are we like our dad who is in heaven when we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There is a sense in which God's blessing is poured out indiscriminately on all mankind. He is a God who blesses. And yet for his children, the blessing that they get is not just sun and rain and crops. They get Jesus. They get everything. The God we serve is the God who delights most in being the giver. The giver of all things. As the hymn writer put it, he is slow to chide and quick to bless. What is this God like that we serve, that we worship? He's a God who blesses. But not only that, notice here, verses 7 and 8, we read, The forgiveness of our sins, uh, forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. He lavished on us. He's not only a God who blesses, He is a God who blesses abundantly. The Greek word here is plutos, for lavished. It means extreme amounts of something of great value. When he gives, it's not a a stingy, miserly kind of giving. He doesn't just flip us a little coin out out of his eternal treasure house. No, when he chose to bless us in Christ, he opened the floodgates of heaven and let all the treasure just pour out on us in Christ. You remember the challenge that God gave Israel when he called them to to offer him a tithe in the Old Testament. Specifically in Malachi, he said to them, Test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. That's lavish. That's lavish. That's plutus. In Ephesians 2.7, Paul says the reason he is that God has seated us with Christ in heavenly places. Why did he do that? For this reason. So that in the ages to come, this is chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing, that's Plutus, riches of his grace in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Why is he doing all of this? God, why are you blessing me like this? Because I am a God who blesses. And I am most glorified not in a little blessing, but in a lot of blessing on undeserving people. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Guess what the Greek word for unfathomable is? Plutus. The overwhelming flood of the riches of Christ. That's the gospel that I proclaim. 
You know what? I think one of the reasons we don't do evangelism, one of the reasons we don't tell our friends, we don't have a passion about it, is because we don't understand what we're giving. We think we're taking away something, taking away their fun. It just feels like we're going to take something away from them. And that's not the way Paul saw it. Rather, it's more like I'm unlocking you from the container that you're stuck in, this barrel that you've been put in, that's keeping the flood of God's blessing from coming upon your life in Christ. Come out and enjoy the blessing through the repentance from your sin and the forgiveness in Christ. God is not only a God who blesses, God is the one who loves to bless lavishly that he might be glorified as the glorious giver of all that is good. He must always, always, always be the giver. And we must always, always, always be the receiver. And you know what? If you understand that properly, what will happen in your life is you will not become laxed and feckless and lazy in your Christian experience. You will become all the more diligent because you will discover that God's glorified most when you receive his blessing. And you'll discover that you receive his blessing most and thereby glorify him most when you are sacrificially seeking out that blessing. And so Jesus says what? Give, but it is more blessed to give than to receive. Why should I give, Jesus? Why should I give? Because that's the path to blessing. I know it seems upside down, but that's the economy of heaven, and you've got to learn it. You've got to learn it. And so when we call you to make financial sacrifices and when we call you to say, you know, take vacation and go with us to another country and let's serve some people who, who we don't know. And, and uh, you know, I'll tell you, this is something we haven't told you, and I'm just going to throw it in here. I hope the elders don't mind. Uh, in January, we are looking at taking uh, just a, a couple of guys, maybe three of us, maybe four, to Kazakhstan. We've got a church planter we haven't seen ever Ever. He doesn't even speak our language. We support him month after month after month. His entire support comes from this little church. We've never met him. We want to meet him. We want to encourage him. We want to bless him. But you know what? That's going to require some things from us. Number one, it's going to require a lot of money. It's going to cost a lot. But number two, it's going to require some men who will say, I'll take time off of work. I'll make the sacrifice. I'll buy myself another parka. (laughs) to keep warm in January in the former communist union. God calls calls us to take tremendous risks, whether it's going across the world or going across the street or talking to your brother or sister who don't know the Lord or your mom or your dad. But you have everything you need to do it in Christ. Oh, I could spend weeks, and you know I could, weeks just talking about this aspect of our relationship with God. 
He's a God who's slow to chide and quick to bless. And when he blesses, they're not small blessings. They're huge. If we will but take them, if we'll but take the risk. Why do we plant a church in Weatherford? It's hard. It's hard. And people get hurt and there's misunderstanding. You know what? We knew that when we took the risk. And it's worth it. It's worth the risk. Because we're doing something. We're not sitting around. We're not going to be a stagnant church. We're going to move. We're going to take risks. We're going to allow people to be upset with us. And we're going to be gracious. And God is pouring out upon us blessings that you can only see with eyes that are trained to see it as Paul's word. I got away from my notes. He is a God who blesses. He is a God who blesses abundantly, lavishly, right? Plutus, thirdly. Verse 6. I know we're kind of jumping around here, up and back. But look at verse 6. He's not only a God who blesses. He not only is a God who blesses abundantly, lavishly. He is also a God who blesses freely. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us who believe. In other words, when God pours out all of His riches, all the riches of heaven upon us in Christ, He does so with no strings attached. He doesn't say, I've done that for you, now you owe me. I've done that for you, now what are you going to do for me? Hmm? Hmm? What are you going to do for me? We are not in debt. He does not hold debt over our heads. He just pours it out. Here it is. It's yours. It's all yours in Christ. He doesn't expect to be paid back or reimbursed in any way. He simply expects us to take all that he gives in us, to us in Jesus and enjoy it to the fullest. Enjoy it. But you cannot enjoy it without sacrifice because that's the path to the enjoyment. You can't do it. You know what? I love what John Piper says. He says, um, you know, we, we don't understand what prayer is for because we don't understand life is war. We think prayer is kind of a, 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 an intercom by which we, we beep the butler upstairs to send down more comforts. And that's not what prayer is for. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie where we say, Hey, God, I'm out here in the middle of the fray. I'm getting shot at. I need help. And God does something miraculous. And you worship. Uh, We were reading. I'm reading right now to my children. Uh, Every night we try to get together and and have our evening prayer and and our time for... uh, reading a, a biography. We, we finished up Pilgrim's Progress, and now we're in uh, the story of John Patton. And the, the children's biographies don't do justice to the theology and the depth of, of Patton. But it told the story about him when the natives of Tana were out to kill him. They thought that he was the one who brought measles that was wiping out their people, and it wasn't true. And he was on the run on this little island for his life. And if you read uh, The Banner of Truth, 
version of his biography, you'll find him talking about sleeping in a great tree at night, watching as the militants ran around under him with muskets looking through the brush trying to find him. And he said, in those quiet hours, I knew such sweet fellowship with the Lord that I never knew in all of my life. He knew the treasure. He experienced the treasure. You know why? Because he was willing to spend and be spent for God. That's the treasure. The treasure is Jesus. The treasure is getting more of him. And the only way to get more of him is to trust in him more deeply. And the only way to trust in him more deeply is to be in situations where you must trust. He gives his his blessing freely. He simply expects us to take it all, all that he gives, and enjoy it to the fullest. And you know what? That's grace. That's the definition of grace. Oh, brothers and sisters, there, is, there are people out there who try to define grace in terms of, uh, one person defines it as the, the power to do things God's way. And I go, ah, don't teach people that grace is a power. It's not a power, it's a person. It's Jesus Christ. It is not Him giving you something. It's Him giving you Himself. That's the treasure in the field that the man found and went and sold everything he had so that he could buy the field so that he could have the treasure. It's Jesus. In Him you have all things pertaining to life and godliness. That's grace. That's It's not just that he blesses. It's not just that he blesses abundantly. It's that he blesses abundantly, freely. Freely. In fact, the Greek word here for um, uh, freely is the Greek word karatos. And if you're a Greek student at all, you know the root word of that, right? The Greek word Karatas comes from the root charis, from which we get the name Chris. It means grace. Everywhere in the New Testament you find grace. You'll see charis. And Paul is saying, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely, karatas, bestowed on us in the beloved. Literally, the verse reads this. To the praise of the glory of his grace, with which he graced us. In the Beloved, and by the way, the Beloved, capital B in your Bible, right? Jesus. Jesus. So God not only blesses us, he's not only a God who blesses, and a God who blesses abundantly, he is a God who blesses us freely. And why does he move toward us with such abundant generosity? Because there's something else that Paul refers to here that motivates him. You know what it is? His kindness. He is a God who is kind to his people. Verse 9 reads, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to what? The kind intention of his will. This is not a God who enjoys being harsh with his people. 
He loves to bless because it is his very nature to be kind to his children. If you truly know who you are in Jesus Christ, you can say with David, Lord, I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In fact, the Psalms are literally bursting with praise for the kindness of the Lord. Take time to go to your Bible software or in, your, in, a, in a concordance and just look up the term loving kindness. You'll spend an hour or more just reading those scriptures. Let me give you a sampling. This is the way the Jewish people, in right relationship with God, understood how he thought of them. You understand? How does God think of you? How does he relate to you? This is a Jew thinking rightly about God's relationship to him. Psalm 33, 5. And we could pick probably 30 or 40 of these. Psalm 33, 5. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Psalm 63, 3. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. I think I pray that psalm every day of my life. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. You're kind to me. I can't believe your kindness to me. Psalm 86:15. You, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in what? Loving kindness and truth. Psalm 90:14. Don't you love this one? Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. That we, may be, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Every morning, Lord, satisfy me with your loving kindness. Psalm 103, 8 and 11. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. How much loving kindness does he have? How far are the heavens from the earth? Psalm 118.1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let all who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is everlasting. In fact, there are 26 verses in Psalm 136. And while I'm doing this, go ahead and turn there. Psalm 136. I want you to see this in your Bible. We don't think of God in these terms like we should, but the psalmist did. I counted last night. Psalm 36 has 26 verses. Didn't take much counting. It says 26 at the last verse. But the important thing to notice is that every single verse has a very definite pattern that you don't need to know Hebrew to see. He says this, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. This was an anthem, by the way. This was an anthem. The priest would, would cry out the first part, and the congregation would repeat back the second part. And so, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And the congregation would say, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods. And the congregation would say, say it. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Say it. 
for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who alone does great wonders, say it, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Twenty-six times. That's all this psalm does. Tries to get God's people to see and to sing and to savor and treasure the loving kindness of the Lord. He loves you. He loves you. And he treats you as a kind father treats his children. And so Paul says that we were predestined because of his kindness in verse 5. And then in verse 9, he revealed the mystery of his will according to his kind intention. Listen, don't get so wrapped up in the debate about predestination that you don't see the magnitude of what's really important. For all who believe, God is being kind to you. In fact, he is showing to you an everlasting kindness that started before the foundation of the world. And that doesn't mean the day before creation won. That means for however long God in his three persons has existed, he's loved you. Let that sink in. It's an extraordinary thing to realize that God, the God that we serve, He's kind toward us. He's not angry. He's not spiteful. Rather, he treats us with tender, loving kindness as a father would treat his precious children. But that's the nature of the God Paul is worshiping. That's the nature of the God that we sing about and we live for. That's the nature of the God we serve. He's the God who abounds in kindness to all who believe. And by the way, Paul tells us, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that uh, really the One reason we have repented, the only reason we've repented of our sins against him, you know why? It's because of his loving kindness toward us. He writes, do not think lightly of the riches of his kindness. You see riches here? Do not think lightly of the riches of his kindness. Oh, he's kind to me, big deal. Listen, if he's not kind to you, you're not saved. Do not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. In fact, the doctrine of the kindness of God is central to the gospel. Romans 11, Paul writes, Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, believer, to you, God's kindness. Now listen to the qualifier. If you continue in his kindness. And so one of the marks of a genuine believer is that they live in the joyful light of the kindness of their God toward them. To think otherwise, there's a word for people who think otherwise. Unbeliever. People who think that God is not being kind Don't believe God when he says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. We were listening to a biography this week of Mueller. And there's a very touching part about when his precious wife died. And he speaks at her funeral. And he talks about how much he loved her. And in his diary, he notes... 
as he's praying for his wife, that God might grant... This is the man of prayer, right? This is the guy who, when we read his biography and his notes and those glorious volumes about answered prayer, we think this is the guy who gets everything he prays for. And he prays for his wife. God, would you heal her? God, be gracious to her. Heal her. But that's not all he prayed for. He prayed that God would make him faithful. And that if you should choose to take him, O oh Father, remind my soul that no good thing do you withhold from those who walk uprightly. And if you take her, it is a good thing for me. And he was able to rejoice exceedingly, though his wife passed away a few days later. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly? If you choose to live not believing that, you are living in unbelief, whether you call yourself a believer or not. It's all tied to the gospel. Do not think lightly of the riches of his kindness. That leads you to repentance. Behold the kindness and severity of God. To those who fail severity, but to you, the kindness, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. And Paul makes the connection between the kindness of God and the gospel even clearer in his letter to Titus when he said this, But when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, where did it appear? Jesus. When the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, because we didn't do any, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out whom He poured out upon us richly Plutus there it is again richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life this is gospel. You say, if I repent of my sins, it's going to crush me. No, it's not. It's going to make you alive. It's going to free you. It's going to unhinge you. It's going to unleash you. It is the path, the means by which God loosens the the trap door of heaven. You know, I Having lived in Kansas for two and a half years of my life, where my wife grew up, I, I couldn't think of what those doors are called when the trucks would drive under or a train drives under those big grain bins. And when they get it positioned right, they jerk this handle and, you know, here it all comes. Tons and tons and tons and tons and tons. That's the gospel we offer. Just bring your little tank under here. And God's going to fill you Why has God saved sinners like you and me? Simply because it is His very nature to be kind. It is His kind, He's kind because He is by nature gracious. And He is gracious because He loves us to delight in praising Him for His glory. Everybody wins. Everyone who believes. Every once in a while, you know, by God's grace, we get to develop a relationship with someone that other people respect and know. 
doesn't happen very often, but on one particular case, there was a, a preacher who had achieved some renown in some parts of the United States. And one week, him and I crossed paths, and uh, we became fast friends. And in the weeks that followed, and months the following year that followed, uh, periodically I'd get a phone call either at home or here at the office or one time at the hospital when Andy was getting put on a new medication for his heart. And he would just call, and we would talk, and every time the phone would ring and I'd hear his name, I'd think, why is this guy calling me? Why is he calling me? I mean, what is there about me that attracts him to me? Good night, I'm nobody. I would think, I don't deserve this. I've never done anything for him. I can't do anything for him. I'm out here on my own. I can't send anybody to his church. I can't tell people how wonderful he is or pat him financially. I can't do a thing for him. Why does he keep calling? I mean, I love it. I enjoy it every time we talk. And you know what? Your relationship with God is infinitely greater than that. Every morning he's ringing your bell. Come on, come talk to me. I want to be with you. I want to fellowship with you. I want to have breakfast with you. And we say, I don't have time for that. i got important things to do today. More important than me? How can that be? There are so many people in this world who see God as harsh and mean-spirited, a tyrant who's never happy with what we offer him, never pleased with what we do. But that's not the God we serve. That's not the God that we want our unbelieving friends and family to come to know. That's not the God the Bible's gospel represents. And it's not the God revealed to us by Jesus Christ. Oh, beloved. We need to know these truths about God. How can we trust someone we don't know? And how can we live in obedience to someone we do not trust? But by trusting him and knowing him, we discover the kindness of the Lord that led us to repentance in the first place. Before we can move on into Paul's discussion about marriage and parenting and all the other things that he addresses in chapters 4 through 6, we must, absolutely must, take the time to tear down all of our misconceptions about God. More than that, we need to fill our minds with the truth about who God is for us. It is the ground of everything we believe and determines how we behave. A.W. Tozer wrote this. Without a doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. That our idea of God correspond as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance. A right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple. Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. I believe, Tozer said, there is scarcely an error in doctrine or failure in applying the Christian ethic that cannot be traced finally and uh, to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. That's why we're spending time on this. We can't get to all of the other practical stuff until we do this. We have to know him. Tozer's right. He's right. 
And when we come to the fuller understanding of who God is, we will realize how rich we are because of his kindness toward us. And we will hardly be able to keep ourselves from boasting in the name of the Lord our God. You'll be going to people saying, let me tell you what I read this morning. Instead of saying, boy, you know, why are you so excited about the Bible? I mean, I can't remember the last time I had a quiet time. Foundational to the gospel and the whole of victorious Christian living is the truth that the God who calls us to live radical lives of righteousness and faith is a God who loves us and cares for us infinitely more than we can know. He's not ashamed of us. He's not angry with us. He's not looking for an opportunity to chastise us. No, He is our loving Father who loves to bless us abundantly, lavishly, and freely that we might be blessed by eternal kindness and know the joy of living in unbroken communion with Him. And so in chapter 4, at the end of his revelation about who we are now that we have been united with such a God as this, Paul writes these words, and with this I close. For this reason, I bow the knee before the Father, before whom, from whom every family in heaven and on earth drives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend. Do you see his purpose? I want you to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Who is this God that we serve? He is a God who blesses. He is a God who blesses abundantly. He is a God who blesses freely. And He is a God who does all of that blessing because He is kind and gracious to you who believe. Understand why I said in the beginning, I want you to leave encouraged. You need to be encouraged. Sometimes somebody just needs to come up to you and say, don't you know how much he loves you? The most important, the most glorious, the most satisfying being in the universe knows your name. 